you have not been here the last couple of weeks, you are stepping into the middle of a month-long conversation that we're having about mental health. Uh, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and uh, and um, it's one of those conversations that doesn't get talked a lot about in church. And so we just decided, you know what? Like we just want to take that really difficult conversation, and we're going to do it imperfectly, but we just want to kind of drag it into the light and begin to have that conversation. And, and so uh, we've been talking about anxiety and depression, and how and where and what hope and healing look like. And so my hope in this series has been uh, all along is that we would take a giant step forward in normalizing a conversation about mental health, especially in the church and start a conversation between you and God and a conversation between you and the people that you love so that nobody, whether it's you or somebody that's a part of our faith community or somebody that you love or you're close to so that nobody that's in your orbit or your influence or that you have a relationship with, that nobody would ever again feel like they're all alone, they're completely isolated, that whatever bad they're fighting that they're doing it alone. That's why we're doing this series. So um, when I was 12 years old, I met the most beautiful girl I have ever seen. And so we met, before I tell you what year, uh, actually, how many people were alive in 1987? Okay, okay, in the first service, how many people were not alive in 1987? In the first service, most of the people were not alive in 1987. I was like, what in the heck? So we met in 1987 on our way to uh, a youth camp with our church uh, during spring break. And uh, we had mutual friends and I was absolutely stunned and taken with her from the beginning. And like most white girls in the late 80s, she was a bit of a valley girl. And so you guys were all around then, you might know what that is. And so she had like the acid wash jeans and the big Aquanet hair. And she had a smile that could light up the room and she was absolutely magical. Unfortunately, she was not interested or into me like at all. And on top of that, she was a really good girl and she was uh, a quite a, a rule follower. And because her you know, parents wouldn't allow her to have a boyfriend. So because of all of those things, I had no chance, but I didn't care. And so I waited a little while, you know, I just kept pursuing her, but I waited like a, a, almost a full year after meeting her before I told her, look, we're going to get married, which really freaked her out because we were only 13 and, uh, and, and it didn't help my cause with her at the time at all. But I just, I didn't care. I just kept shooting my shot. I'm just going to go in at one point. Like, come on, come on. And it turns out I was right. I'm proof that if you just stick with it, persistence wins because I just kept at it and kept at it and I wore her down and finally won her over. And, and, and we obviously had no idea when we met that day on the way to camp in 1987, just how much that experience in that camp would change and impact our lives. Not only because we met and ultimately what I told her was gonna happen, happened that we fell in love and got married and built this beautiful life together and been married 27 years and have a, an amazing life. Uh, but in, in addition to meeting each other, that camp changed the course of our lives because it changed everything for both of us spiritually. So the camp itself was put on by an organization called Radical Reality. They operated primarily in Northern California for a long time. It's an organization that was run by a guy named Donnie Moore, and Donnie was incredible. He was larger than life. He had played college football when he was younger, so he was just this giant, giant man. Um, but as big as he was, he had a presence that was even bigger. When he walked into a room, it was just he just filled up the room. 
He had a way of making everybody feel seen and known by him. He was fiery and intense and loving. And few people that I've ever had the privilege of knowing in my life ever that I've ever experienced or been around loved Jesus like Donnie did. And even fewer people have had the kind of impact that Donnie had. Over the course of 35 years, he spoke to millions upon millions upon millions of junior high and high school students doing public uh, school assemblies all over the country and all over the world. He's led tens of thousands of people, mostly teenagers to Christ. He was the chaplain for the Oakland A's for 30 years. And um, if you have been an A's fan, you know they can use a lot of prayer. Um, but he had, so he had spent a lot of time around a lot of major league baseball players and professional athletes and had led a ton of them to Jesus. And maybe most importantly, he was an amazing father and amazing husband and friend. But what nobody knew outside of what his wife and kids knew is that Donnie had spent most of his entire adult life battling mental illness and depression. And in 2018, in a moment of darkness and despair, Donnie couldn't think of a single reason to keep living, and he took his own life. And and it was so devastating because this life that meant so much to all the people around him and had had such a massive impact on so many people, it just didn't seemed to matter in that moment. And I remember when I heard the news, it hit me like a ton of bricks. See, I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that God cares deeply, not just about your spiritual well-being, although he does, but he cares deeply about your mental and emotional vitality and health because they're not disconnected. They go together. So a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how the title of this series is a little bit of a misnomer. We called it Defeating Depression because not all mental health issues or depression issues are the same. In fact, there's no simple or singular cause, right? Which makes it such a difficult thing for us to talk about because then there's no simple or singular solution. And we all have different levels of susceptibility. Some of us are born with certain brain you know, chemistry or certain things uh, about the way that our brains work, that we're just more susceptible to it. People experience mental health issues at different times for different reasons, at different levels of severity. And so depending on your situation, you may indeed actually be able to defeat it. You may indeed have a period or a, 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 a season in your life where you struggle with depression or anxiety and but and but something happened where you were able to come out of it and get healthy and whole and be completely healed and never look back. But for so many others of us, that is not our experience. And so for me, even if you can't, part of the conversation that we wanted to have around this is even if you cannot defeat depression, you can keep it from defeating you. We, we live in such a strange time. Like if you just look at the buzzwords that we use on social media and we use words like success and hustle and crushing it and killing it and grinding it out and, and talking about having grit and growing and expanding and exploding and being not coming out on top and doing more and making more and multitasking and winning. And, and there isn't anything wrong with any of those ideas or words. They're fantastic. Everybody loves to win. Everybody loves when things are growing. Everybody loves when the, you know, the, the growth curve is up up and to the right and, and it's all going well. And I've used a lot of that stuff myself, but oftentimes in our culture, the people who are held up as successful are not the people who are mental, mentally and emotionally healthy, who love their families and cultivate deep and lasting relationships and people who love their lives. It's people who just suck it up and just get things done. 
And so when anyone is down, the subtle or not so subtle message in our culture is you just need to get over it and move on and make it happen. The question that we've been asking in this series though is are we actually really getting over it or are a whole bunch of us just sort of like shoving things to the side or shoving things down and then experiencing all the fallout of that in every other area of our life? And even in church, we have lots of language that centers around winning and faith and victory and overcoming. And why shouldn't we? In fact, it's a lot of, there's massive themes in the New Testament about that. In Romans chapter eight, verse 37, the, the writer wrote these words. He says, we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us, which is 100% true. In fact, you are not just a conqueror. It says you are more than a conqueror, which means that you don't just have a little bit of victory. You didn't just squeak it out, squeak the win out, you know, or, you know, barely make it. No, no, no. You have an overwhelming, no doubt about it, dominating kind of overcoming or victory in your life. And it's not just a one-time thing when then it's over and done with. It's an ongoing reality that you live in. And so then the, it begs the question, if that's true, then what's the problem? Why can't we just pray or believe or faith our way out of our anxiety or our depression? Why can't we just all snap out of it? And have you ever wondered that about somebody you love or care about? Like, why can't they just snap out? Or have you ever wondered that about yourself? Like uh, that idea that if you could just kind of reframe your situation or dig deeper or power through it or just have more faith or believe God that you would somehow just be over it all. See, while it is true that you are more than a conqueror through Jesus, that is not the full picture of what life is, experience is like. In fact, it's, it's not balanced because there's a whole lot of other scriptures that, that come before and after that. See, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Like I'm the least handy, least mechanically inclined person I've ever met. And part of it's just because like, I don't want to know. Like, I don't want to know how to fix stuff. Then I got to fix it. Like I just call somebody else. Like I open the hood and I'm like, yep, it's an engine. Looks like it runs on gas. I don't know what that does. Let's call somebody to fix this. I love cars. I love driving. I hate dealing with all the problems and the maintenance of stuff. But even somebody like me with a very basic understanding of stuff, Right? I, I know that your tires, something being out of balance is eventually gonna cause it to wear in a way that eventually it's gonna blow out. It's gonna wear out and then blow out. And, and I think sometimes we latch on to ideas and truths or half truths or certain things that, that are true, but they're not balanced by their full reality of what life is and what faith is. And, and so in our lives, we begin to wear out mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And it's what causes people to just completely melt down and burn out and then just be like, that Jesus stuff didn't work, man. I thought it was gonna be different. See, yes, ultimately you are more than a conqueror through Jesus. But also when you read the scriptures, God never ever shies away from the brutal realities and the broken parts of life and the darkness that people walk through. In fact, the, the people that that verse about being more than conquerors, the people that that was written to, they were going through some really horrific and painful stuff. In fact, there, there's an entire book in the Old Testament that's just devoted to the darkness of life and the bitter parts of life and the darkness of soul. And it's called Lamentations. I've grown up in church. I've been like in church my whole life. I've never heard a single passage read in church. I've never heard a single sermon preached in 47 years about, from the book of Lamentations. We just shy away from it. All through the scriptures, there are people who 
who love and are connected to God, who not only experience hardship and pain, but ultimately end up wrestling deeply with despair and anxiety and depression and suicide, whether it's people like Moses, and a lot of them are people you've heard of. We just don't focus on this part of their story, right? It's Moses and David and Solomon and Jeremiah and Jonah and the apostle Paul or the guy that we're gonna look at today, his name was Elijah. And I love Elijah, and this is why we're gonna look at his story. I love Elijah because he's kind of edgy. Like he's got a little bit of an attitude. He, he's considered, he's certainly one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, considered one of the great prophets who, prophets who ever lived. Like, like for instance, in Elijah's life, while he was you know, a prophet of God in the Old Testament for the people of God, he once prayed for a drought and it happened. It didn't rain for three years. And there was this one moment where he didn't have any food. And so God sent these ravens with food to feed him. He was fed by ravens. That's pretty cool. That's kind of a baller move. He prayed for a little boy who had died and God brought that boy back to life. But he was also kind of mouthy and sarcastic and a little bit eccentric. He wasn't afraid to kind of make a little bit of a show of the things that God was having him do. I, I, I kind of think of him as like the Han Solo of prophets. Like he was daring and he was brash and he got it done and he was heroic and did all this incredible stuff, but he was also kind of like, yeah, I don't know. He's got a little bit of a edge to him. And so there's this place in 1 Kings chapter 18 um, where there's a showdown between Elijah as the singular prophet of God and 900 other prophets from false gods. And so it's one against 900, but Elijah doesn't care. He's fearless. And so they decide to have basically this contest to prove which God is real, Elijah's God or the God or gods of all these other prophets. And so they build these two giant altars and they're gonna take turns and the other prophets get to go first and they're praying to their gods and they're cutting themselves and doing all this crazy stuff because they believe that that's what would get their God to respond. And and uh, Elijah starts eventually kind of mocking them and making fun of them. And it's like, I don't know, guys, is he asleep? Is he indisposed? And the language kind of that he kind of uses, actually, depending on how it gets translated, he's like, is he on the toilet? Like, is he, where is your God? Why isn't he showing up? Why isn't he doing this? And then he, after they go and nothing happens, he has all this water brought in and dumps all this water all over the altars and all around the altars. And he steps up and he just says, God, I'm not praying this for me. I'm not praying this for you. I know who you are. You know who you are, but you need to show these people what's up. And fire comes down from the heavens and consumes both altars and dries up all the water. I mean, it is a movie cinematic moment. When I read that again this week, I thought, and I don't know if this ever happens to you when you read the Bible, but you thought like, if God just did something like that for me and my life, like, I don't think I would ever doubt or freak out ever again. Like, I don't think I could, I, I think I would be good. Like fire coming down from heaven, that'd be amazing. Because we like to think that the reason that we're anxious or depressed or down or doubting is just because God hasn't sent down fire from heaven or he just hasn't come through or showed up in a way that was just undeniable because if he did it would change everything 
But honestly, we're fooling ourselves because that's not even what happened for Elijah. Take a look. So we're gonna begin reading part of his story in 1 Kings chapter 19. And it's, there's a lot to it. So we're gonna just read bits and pieces. Uh, and then I'm gonna fill in the blank and kind of tell you some of the other stuff that's happening. So in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse one, this incredible moment where fire just fell from the sky and consumed all the prophets and all the, all the you know, evildoers and all that stuff. And then this is the very next scene in the story. It says, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And so Jezebel sent away, I'm sorry, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of them. Now, you don't have to know a lot about Ahab, but he was the king and he was an evil king. And you may not know a lot about Jezebel, but you know that nobody has ever named their daughter that, which is a pretty good sign that she was a pretty bad person. And so even though he's the king, she's the one that's sort of in charge. And we know this because he reports to her. He goes and tells her like, can you believe it? This Elijah guy, he kills everybody. And then she's the one that flips out and makes the, the threat, right? She sends a messenger. She doesn't even show, she doesn't even have the courtesy to show up herself and make the threat. She sends a messenger that I'm gonna kill you. And remember, Elijah just had seen literal fire. I know if you've been around church for a while, sometimes there's a, you know, we talk about metaphorical fire when it comes to like God's presence. It's this symbol of this thing. No, that's not what happened here. This was real fire falling down out of the heavens. And I would think you'd think that something like that would kind of hold you for, I don't know, at least a week, right? Where you just be like, I just remember like last week when fire fell, like, I think I'm good. And so you would think that Elijah would just be like, get out of here with that woman. Like, you talking to me? I don't know if you heard, but I can call down fire from heaven. But that's not what he does. The very next words in 1 Kings 19 say, Elijah was afraid. See, the truth is, is that success, even spiritual success, it doesn't immunize you against depression or anxiety. In fact, sometimes it actually makes us more susceptible that in the moments where we are at our highest, that we are most vulnerable for what comes next. And I think this moment for Elijah is so helpful and instructive because his fear and his anxiety don't make sense. I don't know if you've ever suffered from anxiety or panic. I, I, know, I haven't been somebody that suffered from that, but I know a lot and, and love a lot of people who have. I've only had one panic attack in my life and there was a good reason for me to have that panic attack. But for a lot of people, there, there's not just an obvious reason. And so I've learned as somebody that's been surrounded by people who struggle with this, I've learned the hard way that one of the least helpful things I can do is ask them like, hey, why? I know you're anxious. Why are you afraid? Why are you anxious? Like what's, and, and it comes from a good place but it's a question that's kind of designed to try to surface what's happening, right? To try to make, make it all make sense. But the problem is, is it, it almost never does, right? It, it, because it's a logical and rational question, but what they're experiencing is not logical or rational. Because when you're anxious, you don't often know why. And so what happens next in Elijah's story is she makes this threat. He's afraid. He runs for his life. He goes out into the wilderness. He ends up alone and he sits down and he just says, God, I'm through. I'm done. I don't want to live anymore. Kill me now. Which again is weird because 
She wants to kill him. He's afraid to die and doesn't want to die. So he asked God to kill him. Not exactly really logical. See, anxiety often is just an irrational response to this overwhelming sense that our life is spiraling out of control, that there's things that, that are just beyond our control that we can't figure out. In the end, I actually think that the best answer to why are you anxious or why are you depressed is actually just because I'm a human being. So the story goes on. It says that Elijah was afraid and then ran for his life. And I think this should honestly be encouraging to us because Elijah freaked out and ran for his life right after the best moment of his life. And when he, as you're gonna see in just a second, when we move into the other part of the story, when he spun out in his anxiety and in his depression and in his suicidal thoughts, God showed up for him. See, I, I don't know what it is that you experience when things go dark. I don't know how it is for you when you spiral to a, a dark place, but I do know that you can know that when you're overwhelmed with anxiety, when you're panicking, when you're lost in a pit of de de depression and despair, that God is closer to you than you can possibly know. And this is a truth that I keep coming back to every single week in this series because if nothing else, I want to completely dismantle all of the guilt and the shame and the lies that so often get attached to these moments and to these conversations in spiritual places in church. And so Elijah, it says in verse three, it says, when he came to Beersheba, so he's afraid, he runs for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. I, I think the imagery is unmistakable. His soul is in a wilderness, and so he runs into the wilderness. See, in my experience, both in my life and in the people that I know and love and in my life as a pastor, we eventually create a world on the outside that mirrors the world that's going on on the inside. And so Elijah, he can't take one more step. He just wants it to be all over and he can't bring himself to take his own life. And so he just begs God just to just take him. And he's so completely drained that he just sits down under a bush and he falls asleep. And when I read that this week, I thought, two things must be true about this. This must be like an incredible depression and he must be a pretty young guy to sit down under a tree or under a bush and just fall asleep. Because when you're young and you're tired, all you do is find a place, sit down, lay down, fall asleep. How many know when you get older, it gets complicated. When you wanna go to sleep and you're tired, you have a whole routine that you start. You light a candle you take a bath and you drink some wine, you spray the little stuff on your pillow, whatever that magic dust is, and you have the lotion that you put on and you have the music and then you gotta turn the fan on because you need the white noise. And you set the bed to the right thing and then you get your CPAP machine ready. And then my wife has this little like cocoon thing that she gets in and then once she's in it, then I take this weighted blanket and I put it over her. 
and then she's ready, and then, and then I gotta get pillows and arrange them around me and put one between my legs so I, like, my back will function in the morning when I wake up. And I read this, I'm like, there's no way. That dude, like, if he fell asleep under a bush, he got up and was like, oh, God, I wanna die because of my back. But, but watch what God does, right? He's depressed. God, just kill me now. And this is what happens. It says, all at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then he laid down again. And I love that that's what, he, that, that God comes and is so tender and he wakes him up and he looks around, he sees the food, he scarfs it down and he goes back to sleep. Like, have you ever been there? Like, have you ever been in that place where you could just barely get out of bed and you wake up and you're just looking around and you grab the donuts and the flaming Hot Cheetos and the Diet Mountain Dew because you're watching your calorie intake and then you go back to bed? right? No, just, just me. Um, the thing I always tell myself that makes me feel better is I have a friend that, um, that uh, Uber-eated themselves a bag of Cheetos from a gas station, and I just feel like that makes me a better person than them, so it makes me feel a little bit better. So God wakes him up, says eat, but he's not done. Then this happens again. The angel of the Lord, verse seven, came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by that food. He traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into the cave and spent the night. So I, this is this really incredible, this really interesting and beautiful moment because of how tender God is, that God doesn't show up and say, wake up, you lousy, lazy, good for nothing. Why did I ever choose you to be my prophet? I sent down fire and here you are out in the desert under a tree begging me to kill you. Snap out of it, let's go. No, that's not what God's like. Wake up, I baked you a cake. Wake up, eat something, go back to sleep. See, Every, pretty much everyone, every, all the experts, psychologists, neurologists, medical doctors, they all agree that your mental health makeup is made up of three different components. And they use slightly different words, but they're all describing the same thing, depending on who you ask. But in general, they talk about their, your patterns and your habits, the things that you're doing, they talk about your brain chemistry and your, your mind and your thoughts. And they talk about people and connection and relationships. And one guy I read actually used the words to sort of sum all that up. He used the words nurture, nature, and neighborhood. And it's not necessarily the nature and nurture we think about when we think about raising kids, but he, it, it was like the nurturing part. What's going on in your life? How are you caring for yourself? What are the patterns and habits in your life? The nature, the stuff that you were just born with that was imprinted on your brain chemistry, your thought processes, all that stuff. And then your neighborhood, who's around you, who's in your life, what are the relationships and the connection? And I like that because it just kind of makes it easy to remember. And because you're an integrated being, those, all of those things are connected and they're deeply connected to your spiritual life. And so in this story, you actually begin to see God move into a conversation with Elijah by addressing some of these areas. And, and so you, you actually see God actually starts with the nurture part. I mean, it doesn't sound super spiritual, but God, the first thing he does is say, wake up and eat. You need to eat some food. Get up and eat something. You'll feel better and then your brain will actually have the nutrients and the fuel that it needs to begin to function a little bit better. And I think this is important because we don't often connect the dots between what we're doing and how we're feeling. 
And so we have these crazy eating habits or these crazy sleeping habits. And then we wonder why we feel terrible all the time or we don't want to get out of bed or we can't. It just seems like God's far away. And sometimes it's just because you need a nap. And if you, and I know if you have like mental health issues, like for real, like persistent, like the pushback in these moments is to go, well, it's not that simple. And I honestly get that because there's people that I love and spend my life with that, deal with this stuff all the time. I know that there's, this is not all of there, there is to this, but this is an undeniable part to it. See, so often when we're in a mental health tailspin, we start trying to control all these things that are out of our control and we ignore the very things that are in our control, just like about how much sleep we're getting and the kinds of people we're around and the kind of food we're putting in our body. And so often, whether it's in this area or in any area of our life, we want to get better without doing anything. We want, we want things to change without us having to change. But I'm telling you, if you don't do anything, the, the future you can expect is just more of the past. It's the thing that you've been experiencing because you cannot compartmentalize yourself and your life. That's not how God created you to work. And so God goes to Elijah and is like, Elijah, wake up, eat, drink, sleep, repeat eat, drink, sleep, repeat. Why? Because for your brain to begin to start to function correctly, for you to have healthy thinking, it actually requires you to get some rest and to get some food. And so in this story, Elijah doesn't just get one good night's sleep. He gets a bunch of good night's sleep. He doesn't just have one good meal. He has several good meals. Why? Because your patterns and your habits matter. The nurture piece matters. And then he hikes over the mountain to the mountain of God and he spends time with God there. And God begins to address kind of the nature piece. He begins to address his thinking. If you begin, if you continue to read the story, you see that, that um, part of Elijah's problem is that he had convinced himself that he was all alone. And, and so because of that, he isolated himself from everybody. Remember, he went into the wilderness with his servant, but he just ditched him. He's like, you stay here. I'm so sad, I need to be alone, which is the opposite of what happens, right? When we're spiraling is like, we need to actually be around people. And so he believed he was all alone. So he isolated himself. And when you read the story, Elijah has this destructive thought pattern loop that just, it just keeps running over and over again. And he actually says it to God several times where he, he basically says, there's no hope, I'm all alone, I'm gonna die. There's no hope, I'm all alone, I'm gonna die. Because God goes to him and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you here? How did you end up here? And God doesn't ask him that to, to catch him. God doesn't ask him that in an accusatory way. God doesn't ask him that because he doesn't know. He's trying to get Elijah to come around to what's actually happening. And Elijah just keeps saying, there is no hope. I'm all alone. I'm gonna die. And so God inserts himself into that loop and begins to break it. And it's like, there is hope because I'm here and I'm with you. You're not alone. There are actually thousands of people who are for you and with you and on your side. And you are gonna die, but it's not gonna be today, Elijah. And it's not gonna be right now. And it's not gonna be because of this. And so get up because now God begins to address the neighborhood piece. Now he sends them, he sends them out. And he's like, I want you to go find Elisha. I want you to go find this other guy. And you guys are gonna partner up and you guys are, that relationship, that connection is gonna actually help pull you forward. Isn't it strange how when we need people the most, we often run from them, not to them. And so God steps in and sends him to go find Elisha 
so that they can face whatever is next together. And God deals with the nurture and then the nature and then the relationship to the neighborhood. And so we're going to actually get into a lot of this stuff a little bit more next week. Um, and, and I I really think you should be here. Actually, Hansi and I are going to tag team next week, and she's going to share a lot of her own personal journey and her experience in all of these different areas of moving from really dark, painful places into a more healthy place. See, the truth is when we're in a dark place, it's because our thoughts and our experiences and our habits have all come together in a way that has disconnected us from the people around us, from God, from ourselves, and sent us just spiraling downward. And when that happens, that the severed connection that, that, that happens, it starts a chain reaction that just leads to more isolation and more disconnection and more isolation and more disconnection, and it just snowballs. But we can find our way back. I love what Dr. Henry Cloud says. He says, your brain runs on oxygen, sugar, and relationships that you need air to breathe and you need to feed your body so that you have sugar, glucose that's sent to your brain and you need relationships, people, connections in your life. Because that connection, those relationships, they are the path forward. And it starts with your connection with God, for sure. There's no doubt about it. But to be honest, that's not enough. You need other people as much as you need connection with God. And I know that might sound weird to you coming from a pastor. It might even sound heretical to you. But if you don't believe me, just go read Genesis chapter two because God was the one that looked at Adam and it was just him and Adam. And it was Adam and God and they were together and God was the one that looked at him and said, it's not good for you to be alone. And so God essentially looks at Elijah and begins to tell him, if you want to change how you feel, you're going to have to change some of what you do. Because in the end, depression is this whole person affliction. It affects all of you. And so healing is going to require a whole person approach. Sometimes we're just like, yeah, I started eating better and getting exercise, but I'm still, yeah, okay, that's great. That's one piece of it. Sometimes we're like, I don't want to do any of that. Just give me pills, give me pills, give me pills. And I am not anti-medication. I've talked about that multiple times in this series. But the medication is there to level us out so that we can begin to tackle this stuff and get help. By the way, Elijah does not have an overnight turnaround. We actually read it took over a month for Elijah to begin to tunnel out of the place that he was in. 40 days, 40 nights. And one of the things I love about the story is that God never demeans him. God's never like, hey, can you hurry it up? I got some like prophet stuff that you need to take care of. You know, like let's rush it along. See, the, the pressure for us to snap out of it, it never comes from God, ever. It always is from our culture and people around us. And because mental health issues often develop slowly over time, they are going to heal and dissipate the same exact way, slowly over time. It takes God doing a deep work in you. And it takes you tackling some of this stuff. It takes time for you to tunnel out. It doesn't happen immediately. It's a process. See, you cannot snap out of it. 
but you can begin to slowly steer your life in a new direction towards healing and wholeness. Tomorrow can be better than today, but it's not going to be on accident. It's going to be because of some of the actions and decisions that you took, that you made today. So I wonder for you in this particular conversation, or maybe it's for somebody that you are, that you love, that you're a part of their journey as they struggle through this, what part or what aspect of the emotional health do you need to kind of explore and address in your life, whether it's that nurturing piece in your habits or it's the nature piece in your thought processes or the relationships and connection? What do you have, that, that? what have you refused or sort of surrendered control of that you need to actually take responsibility for that would make a difference? See, the situation that you're in, it is no matter what's happened to you, it is not your fault. But it is your responsibility. The, the, you may have been born with a particular set of brain chemistry, particular mix. You may have experienced something super traumatic. You may have experienced something that pushed you into something really dark. And that is not your fault. But the healing piece is your responsibility. And so maybe it's as simple as, and I say simple, it's not easy, but simple as you actually letting somebody see you, you you telling someone what you're struggling with or you making that appointment and going to see that therapist or that counselor or that doctor. Maybe it's you just simply needing to decide to limit your access to certain kinds of foods or, or to alter your insane schedule so that you can actually get some rest or to set some boundaries in some relationships that are incredibly draining. See, because in the end, how you're living is the largest determiner of how you're feeling. It just is. Because you're an integrated being. And I know none of this is easy, especially when you're stuck. And and for me, as somebody who, this is not an ongoing struggle for me in my life, but it has been a lifelong struggle with the person I love the most in this world. So I've had a front row seat to the darkest of moments. And I know if that's been your experience, the pushback, you know, maybe is like, I get all this, you know, it's for certain people with seasons of depression, but this has just been my reality ever since I can remember. And, you know, there may have been something that triggered, you know, some triggering circumstances, but if there were, it was so long ago, I don't even know what it was. And I totally get all that. I know there's a difference. But honestly, if that's you, it just means that this stuff actually matters more in your situation, not less. It means that you have to fight harder and battle harder just to get yourself back up to level. And it's not fair, but it is just the reality of the fight that you have to fight. See, sometimes things in our life aren't cured. They don't just go away. They're just something we have to manage and live with. There's something that we have to find a way to be as healthy and whole as we can. Finally, in every single week of this series, um, I've been bringing it back to Jesus, not because I think he's going to wave a magic wand over your life and instantly fix all the stuff. He could do that. It's pretty unlikely. But I bring it back here because I know that he is the one that your soul needs the most. Because the one who made you 
And the one who knows you is the one who is with you and will take you by the hand and lead you out of that dark place. I, I love what 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13 says. It says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And, and I want you to know whether this is your experience or somebody, the experience of somebody that you love, that no matter how dark, no matter how painful, no matter how isolated, there's hope. That, that hope doesn't deny the reality of your situation, but it does push back against the finality of it. That it's not the last word, that the darkness and the pain and the struggle are real, but they're not the final chapter in your story. That there's coming a day when everything, when all we see and all we experience is gonna go away. All you're going through, all the darkness, all the despair, all the fear and anxiety, all the pain and struggle, all and all that will remain is faith hope, and love. And, and I know that when you're in that challenging spot, when you're in that really hard spot, it almost feels hollow to say that. But I, I want you to know that hope isn't a wish. and It isn't even a feeling. The scriptures make it clear that there's a substance and a power to it. That hope is actually a person and his name. His name is Jesus. One of the things I love about the descriptions that the scriptures give us about Jesus is just how well acquainted with the human experience he is because he became one of us, calling him a man of suffering that he identifies with and knows the darkest moments of the human experience. And Charlie and Lissette actually are gonna sing a song about that right now. Son of God, in all his innocence, you're walking in the dirt with you. He knows what living is, he's acquainted with our grief. Man of sorrow, son of suffering, blood and tears. God who 
Um, in Elijah's story, it tells us that he left where he was at in the wilderness and he went to the mountain of God. Um, but what I love about his story is that when he's in this place, that the mountain of God is not where he encountered God when he was bottoming out. That God came and found him and met him in the wilderness in his isolation, in his pain, in the darkness, because that's who God is. That's who Jesus is. And so you may not know it, but God is the God who comes to where we are. And so you might not be aware that he's drawn near to you, but that's the beautiful reality this morning is that he's closer than the breath in your lungs. Would you pray with me?